Hi, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with Amanda Lang. On this program, you'll hear journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang's analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas exclusively for The Hub. In Conversation with Amanda Lang is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with award-winning journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian business, economics, and public policy. In today's conversation, we'll cover a set of business and economic releases this week, including new GDP figures from Statistics Canada, consumer confidence numbers from the Conference Board of Canada, and a week of new bank earnings on Bay Street, and what all of these releases tell us about the direction of Canada's economy and the right policy response. Amanda, we have a lot to discuss. Thanks once again for joining us. Good to be with you. Let's start with today's Statistics Canada's release on third quarter GDP. The statistical agency estimates that the economy contracted by an annualized rate of 1.1%. This was in contrast with projections from the private banks and the Bank of Canada itself, both of whom had anticipated modest growth. The extent to which there is good news here, the country avoided slipping into a recession because second quarter GDP numbers were revised upwards from a slight contraction to positive growth. What's your reaction to the results? What do they tell us about the economy and government policy? So it was a surprise to the downside. I I would say the other bright spot in the data for not just the revision uh, of history, which is always kind of a funny thing, right, for for people to wrap their heads around. Um, But also there's some evidence that September and certainly October, these are flash estimates that they give, might have been positive. In other words, we might have eked out growth at the start of that fourth quarter. So what does that say? Well, it says, I think, what we all have kind of been intuiting, which is that the economy may well do what everybody has hoped, which is uh, achieve a soft landing. So we'll get the slowdown that's just enough to keep us from spending too much um, to frustrate the Bank of Canada's efforts to bring inflation down, but not so much that we tip us into recession. So are we there yet? That's where you'd go back to that 1.1. And I would say that was a bit of a shock to the downside. So if you want to be a glass half empty, that was surprisingly weak. And as you know, some of the risk around that is the so-called headline risk. What do people make of that? And do they get more worried? We already have fear out there. Does that stoke the fear? So maybe you and I agree. Let's focus on the revision up and October's positive uh, number and kind of gloss over that negative number for third quarter. Your observation, though, about the animal spirits and the extent to which consumers, households and businesses may respond to the negative parts of the report may be best reflected, Amanda, in newly published analysis from the Conference Board of Canada in its monthly index of consumer confidence. One commentator described this week's release as chilling. The index has been around for 60 years, yet November represented its third lowest reading ever, the two exceptions being April 2020 in the height of the pandemic and June 1982 when unemployment was 11% and five-year mortgage rates were nearly 20%. What are we to make of these results, Amanda? What's going on? Why are consumers so negative? So I I put a lot of stock in how people are feeling because uh, people tend to be quite rational about their the outlook for themselves. We are very irrational when we talk about big picture issues. We get lots of things wrong. 
um, our own prospects for job and financial well-being, we tend to have a better grasp on. And then when you aggregate that over a big number of people, it's important. The one that actually jumped out at me um, of all the scary data that you're providing was uh, our our plans to make big purchases, our expectations of major purchases are at 2002 levels. So w- w- that is a bad sign for an economy that needs us to buy, back to this previous argument of like the Goldilocks, just enough slowdown. We need just enough. So if we actually have a lot of fear out there, uncertainty, worries about job losses, then you actually could become self-fulfilling prophecy, right? It tips us into recession that we maybe didn't need to get into, which is that's the weird conundrum, right, for the central bank. So, and I think a lot of this does have to do with consumers already stretched, already indebted and facing that what is really an avalanche um, or, you know, a wall of renewals, mortgage renewals coming in the next two years. People see it, they fear it. Uh, a lot can happen between now and 2025 um, on interest rates. So they may be fearing it more than they need to, Sean. I'm not I'm not sure, but what I would say is of all the data you see, this one matters, how people feel about their own state of affairs and their plans, that does that can have implications for everybody else. Yeah, let me push you on that a bit. You've been in this business a long time. What do you think explains the gap between the GDP numbers, which aren't great, but they're not terrible? The markets have responded generally positive to today's Statistics Canada's release. And these extraordinary, you know, as I said, one commentator called chilling numbers when it comes to how consumers are feeling. What describes or explains the disconnect? So one thing I would point to is um, one that we all know, but it's always I'm covering this on my show this week, which is just a look at kind of the, the real importance of small business in this country. 98% of us are employed by small business. Uh, so the GDP number can be, it can obscure a lot of things. Uh, if you have a really great run for big oil companies and if the banks are doing okay, uh, you know, you can actually get, um, you know, a kind of a, a headline that seems okay when there's turmoil underneath. And what I would add to that, and I'm going to be a little negative here, so but we can flip to the other side of that anytime you like. But I would add to that, one thing we know, and BDC just released data on this not too long ago, the number of new businesses is also falling to a new low. In other words, post-pandemic, even the number of entrepreneurs we typically have in this country has dropped off a cliff. People aren't starting businesses. And that we need that. One third of new businesses will fail in the first five years. Uh, most of them will fail in the first 10 years. So the churn is important. If we don't get it, then where do the jobs come? So what I would say, you know, there is some real insecurity. Throw into the mix, if you want, just one more data point, which is new Canadians, new people, permanent residents and immigrants, and we need even more jobs. And a lot of those will be employed in small businesses. So small business formation is actually data that you want to watch closely. That might be accounting for some of this real negativity, even though we might actually see, you know, we got the banks reporting this week. Yeah, they're going to experience some bumps here, of course, but they're okay, right? They Their stocks fall off if they didn't get as many billions of profit as people had hoped, but they're okay. We're not going to weep for the banks. It's the little companies I'm worried about. Yeah, I would just say, as someone who spent time in policy and politics, the potential gap between overall economic performance and household and consumer sediments, it presents a real conundrum for politicians that the government wants to talk up the economy and talk up its accomplishments on one hand. On the other hand, if it does too much of that, it appears really disconnected from how consumers and households are feeling. And one wonders how successfully or unsuccessfully the Trudeau government has been in terms of walking the line. At times, Finance Minister Christine Freeland has wanted to point to various proof points, including Canada's relative performance and so on to make the case that the economy is performing 
more strongly than people think. But just as she does that, of course, the risk is that people instinctively feel like the government doesn't understand their own circumstances and how they're feeling about the economy. Do you want to talk a bit about that potential political conundrum in terms of how the government thinks and talks about the economy and how individual Canadians are thinking and talking about the economy? Yeah. And I mean, I think you're identifying it as somebody who actually had to put together some of this language um, as well as the policy. You're identifying the problem for government, which is they there is something about leadership that is uh, aspirational, that is about looking over the, you know, the hurdle in front of us to the potential beyond that keeps all of our eyes on the horizon on all of our advantages, which are many. Uh, Canada is still a great and prosperous country. We are all uh, blessed to be here, however we got here. And, uh, you know, I, I do think government's role is to keep us upbeat. You know, they don't they shouldn't come out and say, you know, things are terrible, folks, and we're here to look after you because that does become, of course, this gloomy cycle. You want to encourage the risk taking behavior. You want to encourage the forward looking behavior. The disconnect, I think, happens when there, yeah, you get into kind of more petty cycles of defending a record. Um, you know, I thought it was interesting, Sean. I'd be curious, actually, for your, you know, making the sausage kind of lens on in the fiscal update, their own projections are pointing to uh, unemployment above 6% um, in 2025. And uh, that's interesting to me. I mean, that suggests we're going to have some job losses and, they're, you know, we're going to go back to kind of maybe a more normal rate of unemployment in this country. Um, and people will feel that. And that's, of course, in a in a growing population. So um, I, that to me was a kind of a, a realistic offer by the government of, you know, th things aren't, aren't always going to be the way they were, um, you know, at the height of the what we enjoyed as a boom, which is a boom by Canadian standards. Right. We have to remember that we don't boom the way other countries boom unless we've we've you know stimulated with every penny we've got. So, uh, I, you know, I think there's tough times ahead and the government has to walk a line between being realistic, but also, you know, helping us get past it. Yeah, in that vein, I think one of the explanations for why consumer confidence has fallen so markedly in recent months is because of the almost the suddenness, Amanda, of the deteriorated economic circumstances. You recall when we came out of the pandemic, there was a ton of commentary about whether it would be a, a U-shaped recovery or an L-shaped recovery or a W-shaped recovery. I'm afraid I can't even remember all of the different letters of the alphabet that were used to describe a potential recovery. And and initially, of course, things looked generally promising. We were able to recover the lost output during the pandemic rather rapidly. And because of the level of fiscal stimulus, a lot of households were protected from the income losses. Um, and so they they actually came out of the period with relatively high levels of savings, et cetera. There was a lot of reasons to feel generally good about the state of the economy and where things were headed. But this run-up of inflation and the monetary response, which of course has contributed to where we find ourselves now, seems so sudden and disconnected from how people were feeling in the immediate aftermath that that may explain well how the, the kind of the extent to which consumers have gone from feeling pretty good to now feeling uh, like they were in the pandemic itself. Sean, the, the letter you forgot, which to me was the most important letter, was K. Remember that we talked about that K-shaped recovery, which is where some uh, one line goes up and one line goes down. Um, that's how pandemic was. Some people were on that bottom line of that K. And I feel like for those folks, and you can just think of like, take one, you know, the restaurant industry, the service sector, for instance, entertainment, um, never did have the recovery that uh, that many others had. And then on that, the upward trajectory of K, which, you know, folks like you and I are on, 
yeah, we had to work from home and we were afraid and all, you know, whatever. But pandemic didn't, uh, we kept our jobs. We, we built our savings. You know, we didn't have to pay for transit and lunch. And, you know, we, it, it actually was okay for us. And we actually, many of us built our savings during pandemic. So to me, the people that were on that bottom line of the K, we're hearing from them now. And maybe for a long time, they're like, oh, maybe things are good. And it's just me. And now there's enough of a critical mass that they're saying, nope, this is stuff's happening. And people now, other people are losing their jobs and this feels. So I think that's the letter we got to keep in mind that might still be going on the disconnect between the haves and haves nots, maybe getting bigger. Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday a compilation of our best writing from the previous week. Again, free for you right now at www.thehub.ca. Maybe that's a, a tortured segue to the Canadian banks, but I'll, I'll take I'll take it. It's a big week. We have all the major banks reporting on their financials, starting with Scotia at the beginning of the week, CIBC, RBC, and TD in the past day or so. The Bank of Montreal and National Bank are still forthcoming. Uh, what's your reaction to what we're seeing out of Bay Street so far? I mean, we uh, expected loan loss provisions to rise, the amount that these banks will set it aside uh, for loans that go bad. And th- as we all know, the banks are very different. Um, they're not the same in any way. And so even their mortgage portfolios are completely different. Uh, so comparing one to the other is hard. Uh, we've had everything from uh, Scotiabank missing badly to um, Royal Bank beating uh, the expectations um, we've seen uh, CIBC get, you know, kudos for having a, a slightly lower loan loss provision than some thought they would need. The bottom line on the banks is, I mean, as I said before, they're still profitable. Um, they're still stable. Are they going to go through some turmoil? You bet. They're laying off thousands, in aggregate, tens of thousands of people. I mean, these are big numbers. So we, we that actually does factor in, right, to certainly some cities and places will feel those numbers. And uh, what we need them to do is stay stable. But my concern, and this is where I wish the finance minister would focus her rhetoric rather than on mortgages, is we need banks to be willing to lend. Uh, The number of private lenders for those who need loans right now is creeping up in the marketplace, um, which is fine until it's not. But we need our big banks, which are profitable and enjoy a very um, comfortable place in our economy and society, to take risks. Now's the time to be willing to lose some money. So um, that would be the rhetoric I, w- I wish we would hear is, you know, it's okay to suffer with the rest of us. Your profit can drop a little. Shareholders can weather that. You need to keep lending to small businesses so we do get those startups that we need. You mentioned the rhetoric of the finance minister. Why don't you elaborate on that observation, Amanda? What are we hearing and what should we be hearing in your mind? Yeah, I mean, coming out of the fiscal update when the Canadian Mortgage Charter was announced, uh, which is a non-binding set of suggestions to the biggest financial institutions about how to deal with their own clients around mortgage renewals. The finance minister made some comments um, last weekend uh, in the media around, you know, she's urging the banks to take action here to, you know, reach out proactively to their clients, to extend amortizations where necessary, to waive some of the fees and charges um, around making adjustments to your mortgage payments, and then importantly, reiterating something that's actually been happening. So it's one of those weird political games, but uh, that when you 
uh, renew a mortgage, you're, you shouldn't be subject to the stress test again. So uh, you, you shouldn't, you're not going to be subject to a stress test on what you can pay at this new rate. It'll still be the one that you, you had to meet when you first signed your mortgage. The thing that bothered me about this a little bit, Sean, if I'm honest, and I'd love to hear your policy um, side of it, is this is the minister that regulates. She's in charge of banks, right? This is ultimately, she's the powerful person in their world. And I felt a little um, squishy about her telling them how to manage their businesses. Because on the one hand, what do we need most from our banks? We need them to be stable. We need them to make rational business decisions and protect their capital base. Because where most Canadians um, feel care about them is in our deposits. They are, they are the backbone of the country. And we all depend on their, you know, we've been told this endlessly. It's why we allow the oligopoly. It's why we let them be protected. Uh, it's why fintech is nowhere near where it needs to be, because we need the banks to be so safe. Uh, so I would say, let them deal with their mortgage books in their own way. If some people need to give up their homes, downsize, um, that's painful. And in no way do I diminish the personal pain, but the banks need to make that call, not the finance minister. So I didn't like it. I don't know what you think about it. It's 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 job owning. So maybe it doesn't matter that, you know, she said it, they'll still do what they need to do. But because she's the one in charge of them, it made me uncomfortable. Great minds think alike, Amanda. In fact, this is a subject that I identified in the aftermath of the fall economic statement as one worth writing about for the hub, precisely because, well, on one hand, I understand and even sympathize with the motivation here and accept there may be some need for short-term dispensation so we don't have a massive problem in the next two years involving households who can no longer afford their homes. I felt the same apprehension about Ottawa using the bully pulpit to encourage banks to adopt a series of programs and policies that are essentially unrooted from basic economics. That essentially is the story of the U.S. housing crash in, in 2007. Um, and so, you know, I understand the impetus. I understand certainly the, the political dynamic here. But as you say, I think what we want is a, a, a neutral policy regime that permits banks to make judgments about how to go about doing its business according to basic economics as opposed to the dictates of politicians. We've seen that story before, and I'm afraid the ending isn't good. Well, and I'll tell you the piece of it that I think, um, and this will, this is, you know, a bigger conversation that I wish we would have more of, but the government, the government's own body, uh, which looks at housing, its own financial authority, uh, housing authority has done research on the financialization of housing. And, you know, we, we could talk endlessly about how this is the real problem, that the supply demand story is a red herring and that we are being distracted from what's actually happened to our housing market and uh, what's actually happened. And I will say this, to have this conversation, you have to say up front, do you believe the housing market has been financialized or not? And if you don't, if the, you, the parties don't agree, you go your separate ways because then the conversation is useless. But if we agree that it has, which is to say we've made housing, the development of housing, rental and the ownership of rental properties and the ownership of mortgages, financial investments on which to profit, then you agree we financialize the market. And when you financialize, all kinds of things happen, but the, just, the incentives get all messed up. Um, and at the moment, the majority of rental property in this country is owned by investors. Is that good? Is that bad? I think you could see in this, again, the government's own research shows it's bad. It's caused um, unfair practices to tenants. It's caused rents to go up. It's caused too few stock to be built. Uh, and so the question I would put, Sean, is if you agree that we've financialized this market, and I always make the, the comparison to water, drinking water, imagine financializing drinking water. So some people could get it and some people couldn't. 
And if you could get it, it's going to be really expensive and other people are profiting off of it. It's disgusting. The very thought of it is gross. Housing is a basic need. Shelter. I don't mean a house with a picket fence in a nice part of town. I mean a roof over your head. To be clear, I mean a roof over your head is a basic human right. How do we definancialize? That's the question I'm now asking people. What does that mean? And I tell you, it's ugly. It's ugly. It's expensive. It's painful for the investing players involved. It is. There's no way to do it other than cause some pain. But you know what? Maybe we don't care. Maybe if you had policymakers with bravery to say the only way back to a normal, balanced housing market is to definancialize, they would start looking at how to do it. Yeah, well said, Amanda. I would just say in response that I come to the same conclusion, but perhaps through a slightly different lens, which is to say, my primary concern is the distortions that the financialization of housing has had on the rest of the economy. Instead of capital flowing to productive parts of the economy, think of investments in technology or research and development or whatever, we've turned the places that we sleep into the, the you know one of the most significant the biggest sector. Exactly. And you're seeing the kind of opportunity costs of that manifest in the rest of the economy. Just just it's worth noting that uh, GDP per capita, again, is now fallen further and puts it at a level that we haven't seen since you know, almost before the Trudeau government was first selected. I don't make that point to criticize the government per se, but to say we have a serious innovation and productivity problem in this country. And, and, you know, obviously it's multifaceted, but a big part of it is that there's this set of incentives through as a result of government policy and other factors, which is pushing productive capital into an unproductive direction, which is where we (laughs) sleep at night. And actually, we just to plug the hub, uh, some of the best uh, writing and research I've seen on this was on the hub. I want to say it was Trevor Toome, but I uh, it may not have been. But it was definitely the hub that did a look at what that means when you put capital into something that then is dormant um, and the and the cost to everybody else. Uh, whereas if you put capital into most things, to your point, the the benefits accrue on an ongoing way. So yeah, the dead money aspect of the housing sector is is real. And I agree with you. I mean, I don't, I guess I wonder whether behind closed doors, people in Ottawa are talking about this and it's just politically too unpopular to say, you know, we're going to, we're going to seize back apartment buildings from publicly traded REITs at below market rates. And too bad, we're going to write a law that makes that possible and break contracts and investors also, I don't know whether anybody's having those conversations, but that would be the path. That would be one part of it. Um, you know, but it's those are painful, hard political conversations that require political fortitude. Yeah, I would just say in parentheses, there's a host of other policies that would have to be policy reforms that would have to be on the table as well, including revisiting the capital gains exemption on primary residents, the inherent subsidy in, involved in CMHC's uh, public insurance model, and various other ways in which we have, as a result of government policy, created these perverse incentives that have contributed to the scenario that you describe. I want to come back, though, to your observations about the government, on one hand, signaling to banks that they ought to provide some dispensation to mortgage holders in the next couple of years. And on the other hand, we're anticipating as early as next week, the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions possibly calling on banks to further increase their domestic stability buffer, which is, of course, the capital reserve that banks must build as a sort of cushion. How do we understand the dissonance between these two 
expectations out of the government. On one hand, to be more conservative in their business practices, and on the other hand, to be, for lack of a better term, more liberal in terms of making judgments that are unrooted from, you know, basic economics. How how are banks supposed to respond to these, you know, what appear to be competing demands? And what does it mean precisely for the point you raised earlier when it comes to banks lending and and providing lifeblood into an economy that needs it? So, I mean, I think the first thing to remind um, everybody is that um, OSFI is not, it is obviously the government, um, but you can bet, I can bet, I would bet that that regulator did not love what it heard from the finance minister and felt a little frustrated in its own aim at making sure if we're going to head into a slowdown, that Canada's banks remain stable uh, and able to withstand it. Uh, so I, there's a difference, of course, between the, that political message and the regulatory message. And if you're a bank, the regulatory one is the one you're going to heed. And of course, that is what investors will be focusing on, raising that tier one capital, which is in some ways more dead money for the banks than other parts of their business. It costs them money and uh, that may well, you know, it might affect their their stock outlook. But to your point about will they have the capital to lend? That again is if we're going to focus efforts, just political job owning, because again, I don't think anybody except the banks should tell the banks and their regulator um, how they ought to run their businesses. But when it comes to lending, the job owning, in my view, should be get the money out the door to small businesses, take some risk. And I'll tell you one thing I was reminded of, Sean, of course, is that you know, I, t- I actually talked to Pierre Clarou, who's the chief economist at BDC, about how we've lost our entrepreneurs. 100,000 fewer entrepreneurs today than 20 years ago. So what is going on? Um, and he was saying that, ironically, people tend to start more businesses when the job market worsens. So, so you, I mean, maybe it makes sense, right? You lose your job, suddenly you're like, oh, darn, and I better do, and I've always had this idea, now's the time. So when the economy is suffering is precisely when you want capital available for small businesses. And we know these are not big numbers. It's not going to kill anyone, um, the banks. Uh, and BDC will play in that as well, obviously, EDC will. But that's when you want money going to people who have the grit and the idea and the innovative ability to start a business. And some of them will fail, but this is the time right now. So um, there's a long way of saying they'll pay attention to the regulator. I hope they'll, you know, ignore the finance minister. Can I say that? I hope they, uh, you know, I assume they will. I assume they'll say, of course, we're going to look after our clients as though they weren't going to, you know, they'll do what's in their own best interest. And owning homes is not in the banks. You know, there's a reason why banks don't often foreclose. They don't want to be in the business of selling houses. That's not what they do. Uh, So I I think I, I would just love to see more focus on do the thing you guys can do best, which is continue to grease the wheels of economic growth, which is what most people should care about. Growth is our agenda. That's the only thing that gets our children wealthier than we are. Here, here. We started positive. We've been somewhat negative over the course of this conversation. Please, Amanda, end us on a positive note. Well, the most positive note I will offer is the Bank of Canada seems to be quite optimistic, right? I mean, it does feel as though uh, Tiff Macklem at et al., uh, barring any bump in the road here, feel like we might have done this thing, right? We've got inflation 3.1%. We do have a, a pullback in economic growth, but maybe it's not too bad. Did we do it, folks? Uh, which is one for the books. If they did it after what looked like they were late to the party and inflation was way longer and more entrenched than anyone thought, kudos to them. And that would be fantastic. If this is a short-lived downturn and by next spring, we're on the other side of it, rates are coming down, jobs are grow- growing again. I feel good about that. I feel good about what the Bank of Canada is saying. Now, we should remember they're cautious too. They're saying they're still going to act if they need to. But I think we're in a place where, you know, we can go into Christmas season feeling a little bit more positive about the future. 
Thank you. What a great way to end the conversation. Amanda, I want to thank you for joining me, of course, and look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with Amanda Lang, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a review and rating. You can also access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada, or visit our website at www.thehub.ca. I'm The Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Gletch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation.